0: invite you to join me in Colossians chapter 3. I started out this week thinking that we were going to be in verses 18 through 21. Your outline reflects that, but let's just treat it as a two-week sermon. It won't last that long, but we'll deal with point one this morning and point two next week, there's enough here for us to deal with in the context of this passage, in the context of the whole of Scripture, within marriage and and for the singles. We're going to speak to all in this text. As we do so, let us ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come to this passage, we ask that you would open our ears to hear from you. You would expose the ways in which we hear through the lens of culture. And you would draw us further into the knowledge of and love of Jesus. Do this, we pray. In his name, amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Lest they become discouraged. This is the word of the Lord. So, do they get your attention? Maybe hair bristle a little bit on the back of your neck? Why? Why might that be? The Lord is offering for us in this text a beautiful design for the way we are to live and operate in relationship with one another. So why is the opening to this text so jarring? Well, maybe we need to ask ourselves, what is this text? I began reading in verse 18, because I stopped in verse 17 last week, Captain Obvious. But where did that division come from? Well, I made it. Paul didn't make it. The Bible doesn't make it. We just chose that as a time for us to move on to the next passage because there are some natural breaks in Scripture, but that break is not a wall. Think about it this way. You wouldn't open a book to the middle and begin reading there. You wouldn't start a movie halfway through. Because you wouldn't have context for the drama, context for the, the conflict that is taking place. What's your favorite movie? Might it be the Lord of the Rings series? For some of us it is. For some of us we've never seen that. But if you entered into the middle of that story, you would see a couple of small guys running around with a ring that looked a lot like a wedding ring, and they're trying to get rid of it. What might you do with that if you just entered in? It might look like they're trying to cast off a burdensome marriage (laughs) with a lot of evil ogres trying to stop them. We need context. We need context to see what is going on. And we need context as we enter into this passage. We need to understand the whole in order to understand the part so just as that is true for The Lord of the Rings or your favorite book, it is true of the Bible. So why then do we read the Bible differently? This a question we've got to deal with as we recalibrate our mind to approach God's Word. As we approach God's Word, we've got to understand a text in context, the context Sorry, of the surrounding passages of the book as a whole of the broad sweep of redemption unfolding for us across these pages of scripture wives submit to your husbands it's jarring if in our fallen context we simply jump in there it's also dangerous so what is the context? well You remember where we've been in Colossians. As we entered into this book in Colossians, we we dealt with uh, Paul's uh, context of speaking against a worldly, man centered false teaching. He was trying to redirect our thought process, and he began redirecting us by pointing us to the supremacy and all sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And then with that picture of the supremacy and all sufficiency of Jesus Christ, he, he, he began to unfold for us this, this beautiful mystery of our union in Christ. Mystery that, that called us to put off the old and putting off the old to, to live in a, in a blessed new unity within the body and then to put on as the holy and beloved of Christ Christ. The new. So as we put on the new, we, we come into this section where he is being very practical, applying our union in Christ to various relationships, beginning with marriage. So hence, the outline that you see before you. Christ-united marriages. What is a Christ-united marriage? Well, again, I... Searched my, uh, my vocabulary trying to capture all that he is speaking of in this marriage. We, we might think of Christ centered as a more familiar phrase, and while that might certainly be appropriate, when I, this is me, when I think of Christ centered, I, I think of Christ focused. Now, we certainly want to be Christ-focused in our marriage. and Christ-united, certainly I'm not trying to capture anything less, but, but maybe more than what I would be tempted to think about in Christ-centered. Uh, Christ-centered is, is good, but, but in marriage we are to be more than focused on Christ, we are to be rooted in Christ. Husband-rooted in Christ, wife-rooted in christ Husband and wife united in Christ. Which means that as the husband and wife are united in marriage, their very marriage, their relationship is united with Christ. Which means it is informed by him. It is powered by him. It is dependent upon him. So with that brief context and that discussion of union, Paul offers some basic instruction. Some basic instruction that we begin with in marriage, what I'm describing as a Christ-united marriage. He's laying out for As we begin to understand what he's laying out for us, we need to see that uh, this marriage... Is, uh, is one example of the relationships that he will continue to teach us about that form, um, well, we'll see it played out in various forms. But he's laying out for us this uh, relational framework of biblical headship. Now, <laughs> he's spoken against the man-centered worldly teaching and calling us to a biblical teaching. So what is the biblical teaching on headship? Well, illustrations are helpful in communicating and teaching uh, new concepts or driving home those concepts. But the illustration for biblical headship may come from a surprising place. The clearest illustration of biblical headship is found in the Trinity. Our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Let me unpack that for you a little bit. When, when you hear submit, what do you think? Well, Oftentimes our, our minds uh, think lesser. That the one who is to submit must be lesser than the one that they are submitting Two. I want to consider our triune God three persons one God Father, Son, and Spirit existing in an eternal loving union and within that eternal loving union Father, Son, and Spirit exist with an equality of being and an economy of role What in the world does that mean? (laughs) Let's speak about an equality of being. Father, Son, and Spirit are the same in substance. They're equal in power and glory. Father, Son, and Spirit are on equal footing in terms of their being. One is not greater than, one is not lesser. They are equal. In substance and in glory. It's the equality of being that is the model for our equality of being in marriage. But there is an economy of role. Even though Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in being, they have differing roles. The Son submits to the Father. The Spirit proceeds from Father and Son. There's an ordering. And yet, in this ordering, Father, Son, and Spirit have existed in an eternal union with perfect love, perfect respect, and perfect joy. We see this throughout Scripture, but it's explicitly pointed out for us in 1 Corinthians 11.3. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Do you understand? It's telling us what we see in the rest of Scripture, that the son submits to the will of the father, and the son's submission to the will of the father is a model for the wife's submission to the husband. For the church's submission to Christ. In the wisdom of God, He has ordained marriage, He has ordained family. And in this relational context, He has appointed the husband as head, a head among equals, to lead, to love, and to sacrifice with Jesus as his model. This biblical headship is rooted in creation, in Eden, in perfection. But we see it further played out in redemption. It's more than an illustration. More than an illustration, the Trinity is a beautiful model for our union in marriage and for the headship that is to exist within marriage. So, wives. With that background, Paul exhorts you to submit. Admittedly, even with that context, that that command, that exhortation, is, um, is terse to our modern ears. Particularly when we enter in to verse, or, verse 18. But... What we need to know is that what Paul gives us in brief, that summary he expounds upon more fully in Ephesians 5. To understand this call to to submit, it is helpful for us to understand more fully what he says in Ephesians 5 and the roles of husband and wife and how they connect to Christ and the church. Go back later and read Ephesians 5. But here, see that the word submit is is noticeably different than the word he uses when he speaks of children and parents. With children and parents, he speaks of obeying, it's a different word in the original Greek and to submit uh, means more than simply to strictly obey it is to bring oneself under the umbrella of authority wives bring yourselves under the umbrella of authority of your husband see your role in marriage, in the context of the whole, of this joyful, loving relationship in which the wife is given to the husband to complete what is missing, what is lacking in him. And in the context of that whole with our triune God as our Illustration and model this call to submit takes shape, maybe more beautifully, in the context of dance partners. When you watch elegant, graceful dance partners waltzing around the dance floor, you don't think in terms of the crooked, pointed finger telling the wife to submit. You think of a husband gracefully leading, the wife joyfully following. But more than seeing the individual, you see the pair. That's the picture. That's the picture that the wife is invited into when she is called to submit. So to the wives, I ask, are you submitting to your husbands? What does that look like? What does it look like for you to submit? Do you encourage his leadership? Do you affirm him privately? Do you affirm him publicly and uh, in the context of uh, public settings? Do you offer your strength and your wisdom to him in a way that affirms that you are with him? Or... Do you offer your strength and your wisdom in a manner that challenges and belittles? The simple admonition to submit that we find in Colossians 3.18, as I said, is unpacked further in Ephesians 5, and specifically in Ephesians 5, verse 33, Paul tells the wives to respect their husbands. This again is modeled for us. In the loving submission and respect that has existed for all eternity within the Godhead and wives, this submission is fitting in the Lord. So how about the husbands? (laughs) Again, the text is brief, but it is telling. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh. With them. And we might add in this way, be worthy of their submission. Again, this verse, it's not just that verse 18 has a context, verse 19 also has a context. And when we understand that context, the whole seems less jarring. Verse 19 commands the husband to love, but if you remember where we were last week, love was defined for us in verses 12 through 17. So again, the question is begged, why are we so quick to put up dividing walls between mere verses in scripture? Do you remember that passage last week? Remember how we defined love, love that a husband is commanded to exhibit? Love is a verb it's an action with an other focused care in mind this love is not self-focused it is not self-serving it is explained for us in the fruits of the spirit that we see in verse 12 described as putting on compassionate hearts kindness humility meekness and patience with that context, Paul hardly needed to add the admonition that husbands, you should not be harsh with your wife. He's just told you to love and he's defined what that love means, and yet he still added it. He added to what is a countercultural reminder for us, and in a different way, was a countercultural reminder. For them at the time you see at the time wives were akin to property (laughs) paul is saying no husband your wife is not property your wife is a co-heir in christ she is equal in being she is equal in substance and in glory She is a gift given to you from the Lord to complete what is lacking in you. So the command is to love them. So to the husbands, I ask, are you loving your wife? Again, Ephesians 5 is helpful because Jesus is the illustration. He's the illustration and the model Jesus sacrificed his very life for his bride. Jesus beautified his bride with the word. The word of God. Jesus leads his bride well and in a way that causes her to flourish. So husbands... called to love our wives in the same way how are you sacrificing for your wife and when you sacrifice do you feel the need to remind her just how much you are sacrificing for her do you feel the need to ask when am i going to get what i deserve as if this were Trying to secure something on your own behalf, that's not other focused love. That is manipulation. So, brothers, let us be aware of our tendency toward self and let us love our wives as Jesus loved the church. It's the wives and the husbands. But what about the singles? They just get to take a pass with this passage. (laughs) Maybe you're wishing I'd asked that question in the beginning. But I did tell you in the beginning that we're going to speak to the singles. No, this is the Word of God. And the Word of God is meant for the church of Jesus Christ, which means there is meaning for all of us. And on several levels, we as a church need to be thinking about how this passage speaks to the singles. I don't have all the answers, but I do want to put forward some of the questions. (laughs) Maybe give us a framework to think about this. Look, there there are singles who would like to be married. And there are singles who are settled in their singleness. As a church, we need to understand that far too many of us treat singleness as a disease that must be cured. And that is unbiblical, unthoughtful. We need to affirm that singleness uh, is and can be both a calling and a blessing. But for those who desire to be married, this passage does offer something in that it models for those singles what it looks like uh, or or what they ought to be looking for in a future spouse. I have a friend and mentor. You've heard Michael and I speak of Dr. Krabendam. He's informed some of our views on evangelism, but he also uh, spends a lot of time mentoring young college students and he would often talk to them about marriage and he would put forward a couple of questions first question he would put forward to young ladies who desire to be married is is that they should be asking themselves about a potential spouse is this a man under whose leadership I can joyfully submit in other words is he worthy of my submission Young ladies, that is a question better asked before marriage than after. (laughs) So let this passage model that for you. But Dr. Kravendam would then ask the men, is this a woman whom I can joyfully lead and for whom I can joyfully sacrifice? Again, a question better asked before marriage than after. And for both the men and women who desire to be married, seek the wisdom and counsel of your family and of the church as you process these questions. But... On another and probably far deeper level, this text is not merely meant to offer uh, wisdom on how to qualify a future spouse. It's meant to point the singles to the blessing of a relationship within the body of Christ. So, to the singles, I ask, how can this text guide you in finding relationships within the church? I don't mean a spouse relationship. I mean relationships with brothers and sisters in the body. What does that mean? Well, look, let's acknowledge that it looks different for different singles and it looks different at different stages in life. But the question before us is how can we bring our biblical masculinity and our biblical femininity to bear in the body of Christ. Look, I'm not reducing men and women to stereotype. But we must affirm beautifully that the Word of God affirms That God created us male and female. He created masculinity and he created femininity. And as male and female, we have something to offer the body of Christ. And as male and female, we have need from the body of Christ. So single men... What does it look like to heed this call? To love, to lead, to sacrifice all within the body of Christ. There's a framework that Paul is laying out for us, a relational framework that applies to the single men as you think about approaching the body of Christ, calling you to love, to lead, and to sacrifice. What does that look like for you? It's different for each of us. But the framework's the same. How about the single women? What does it look like for you to bring yourself under the umbrella of authority that exists within the church to joyfully submit to and encourage the loving and sacrificial headship of the men within the church to encourage the leadership and to allow the leadership to lead privately and publicly. Again, the specifics vary, but the framework is fixed as we consider Christ-united marriages are the same... (laughs) Are akin to a Christ United Church. Look, the questions—the questions questions are hard. They're meant to get our attention, but even the difficulty of trying to work them out takes me back to the beginning. When we first looked at verse eighteen, we—I admitted you didn't admit, but you were thinking it—that that's a jarring way to start a passage. But why? Why was it jarring to us? Might there be something in our resistance that we need to explore? Why is headship and submission and sacrifice so hard for us? Well, back to the context. Oftentimes, we're taking our contextual cues from culture. Culture tells us to live for self, to celebrate self. But here we're talking about union in Christ as a relational context for our lives in the kingdom of God. However, many of us, many of us are living not in the kingdom of God, but in the kingdom of self. And so whether it's marriage or or parenting, we gravitate towards the belief that the purpose of relationship is my personal happiness. And beyond that, or maybe as further evidence of that, of the kingdom of self, we tend to view authority as an evil and oppressive yoke that is meant to be broken. On some level, all of us struggle with these thoughts. But praise be to God. That Jesus is all and in all. That was the truth that we came to when we heard the call to unity in Colossians 3.11. It is a beautiful truth, but it is also a practical truth. Because if Jesus is not all and in all, these relational codes will sound archaic and oppressive. Even though, ironically, they would have been liberal at the time they were pronounced. But regardless, if Christ is not all and in all, this call to submit would be troubling. Because if he is not all and in all, that means that I am all. And I am in all. No one needs to submit to me in that case because I'm not submitting to anyone else. But with Christ as all and in all, this text calls us to oneness. It calls us to oneness in the church. It calls us to oneness in marriage, to oneness in the family. And oneness means that self fades into the background. With self fading into the background, our relationships begin to take on a new shape. I've said over and over again that Jesus is our illustration and our model. Your elders are reading a book together called A Praying Life. It's a book by Paul Miller that it opens up the, this what, what this call to pray looks like uh, Worked out in our lives. And one of the things that we've read recently is this called a child likeness in our prayer life. There's a particular connection in that thought uh, to the Christ united oneness that we're called to in marriage. You see, Miller makes the point as he puts Jesus forward as a model for our dependent prayer that Jesus had no concept of himself apart from the Father. Jesus was the perfect model of dependence because his concept of self, his concept of identity was so interwoven with his oneness in the Father that they could not be separated. He had no concept of it. His focus in love was on the Father and out of this focus, he willingly submitted to the will of the Father going to the cross on our behalf. Friends, our submission and our sacrificial love find meaning in Jesus. So let us lift him up in our marriages, in our families, and in our singleness because he is worthy. And friends, let us lift up our groom because he, he was lifted up for us. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, transform our relationships, transform our our marriages, transform our, our singleness, For your glory, work out this transformation so that we would further experience the blessing of union that you have given us through your death and resurrection, that we might know you and that we might know one another in you. Do this, we pray, for your glory, amen.